Hello and welcome to another episode of Boundless Body Radio. I'm your host, Casey Ruff, and today we have another awesome guest to reintroduce to you today. Rich Condit is a returning guest to the Boundless Body Radio podcast. He is an emeritus professor at the University of Florida at Gainesville and specialized as a virologist who ran a research lab for decades. He has been interested in science since he was six years old, chasing frogs in his backyard creek in Marin County in California. He has studied at the University of California, Santa Cruz, Yale, and the State University of New York at Stony Brook and Buffalo. After making his first appearance on TWIV, the podcast all about viruses this week in virology, in March of 2009, they liked him so much and couldn't get rid of him, and he's been contributing ever since. Rich has no clue how to define the word retirement and has been working nonstop to educate citizen scientists like us. He became, to me, a dear friend and has become a beacon of truth uh, for me and my loved ones since this pandemic began. Rich, it is an honor to welcome you back to the show. Well, it's great to be here, and thanks for the nice introduction. Absolutely. I've been looking forward to this. Well, well-deserved. We are really appreciative of your time. You guys always um, open up TWIV by talking about the weather, and you just told me before we started recording that it snowed in Austin. Uh, yeah, it's almost gone. It's uh, Today, It's uh, our high is uh, 57. It's going to freeze again tonight. But oh, wow. We had, I think, you know, probably a couple of inches yesterday. My grandkids came around and built a snowman out in the front of my house. How awesome. Uh, that's, you know, a perfectly reasonable snowman who's dying as we speak. <laughs> Poor snowman. Uh, yeah, so here it's um, very cold. It's just about 30 degrees. And what happens in, in Utah, it's kind of weird. So we're, we're basically in a giant bowl. And in the wintertime, it gets so cold. Um, but the high pressure kind of traps all the air in. And so it builds up an inversion. And we basically just have to like hmm. sit and marinate in our own pollution. And yeah, it's not, not that sounds great. Not ideal. <laughs> not ideal. Um, you came on the show a few months ago. Um, and we really appreciated you coming on then to talk all about the pandemic. And it's been interesting. Just this last week, I had three separate independent people ask me what I thought about the vaccine. And I kind of got to tell them what I thought about it. And I've learned a lot from you guys on your show. And, you know, I'm, I'm proud that people would ask me about it and trust my opinion. But two things, like the first thing, if you're asking me about anything in general, <laughs> it's probably not a good thing. And if Definitely, if you're asking me about vaccines, we need to get an expert in here to talk about that. So I'm glad you were available and um, wanting to come back and talk vaccines with us. Sure thing. If I would have gone back to March of 2020 and said by the end of that calendar year, we would have a vaccine and not only a vaccine, but we would have vaccinations, meaning this is going into people's arms and not in a study. What would you say? Uh, well, I remember having that discussion back in March on TWIV and elsewhere, uh, I would have said you were nuts. Um, I remember having that discussion and, and uh, people suggesting that we might have a vaccine in a year or so. And, and I thought, no, uh, vaccines typically take, I think the record at the time was maybe four years. And Measles? more like, uh, uh, I don't know, yeah, I can't remember either. but I think... Uh, um, you know, more often than not, it's like 10 years, uh, takes, uh, it, historically it has taken a long time. So, uh, this is, uh, this is a paradigm shift and it's a triumph of modern, uh, science and, and, and medicine. It's just absolutely incredible. I would have thought, I would have thought it would be impossible, but here we are. Hmm. 
So cool. Before we kind of deep dive into vaccines, I just want to clear one thing up. Do you have any kind of conflict of interest? Are you paid by anybody in big pharma? If you, you know, push one vaccine versus the other, does that affect you in any way? Don't I wish? No. (laughs) (laughs) There are no conflicts of interest. None. Okay. Awesome. So we're, we're to this point where I mean, obviously, everything is just so highly politicized, and the vaccine is no different. How, in your opinion, how do we get to this place where vaccines are so political and divisive and, and groups of people that absolutely will not get them no matter what? Well, I think uh, it's probably important to understand that uh, anti-vax has been around for as long as vaccination. Uh, the very first vaccine was Jenner's smallpox vaccine uh, that he pioneered in 1796. And uh, almost immediately, there was an anti-vax movement. Mm. Uh, it's almost like uh, in culture, as in physics, for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. Mm. Uh, you know, go figure. Yeah. But I've, I've, I've thought about this uh, in particular in anticipation of this conversation. And I think there are two components to anti-vax that take on, you know, different flavors depending on the social context of the time. Uh, The first is uh, kind of just a, a fear of doing something that seems unnatural from, from this point of view, I kind of get it. Uh, uh, for most of my life, doctors have kind of scared me, uh, and doctors offices and hospitals and, and that kind of stuff. And so, you know, the notion of being not completely trusting or a little fearful of these seemingly powerful individuals doing things that you don't understand, uh, culminating in like sticking a needle into your kid and injecting them with something and telling you everything's going to be okay. That's a good point. Uh, You know, I get it. Okay. So I think there's a, there's a a natural sort of uh, resistance. If you don't know anything else, a natural sort of resistance to this, but I think more important or as important, probably more important is that for every human endeavor, there's somebody there who wants to take advantage of it uh, in nefarious ways. Mm. And in this case, I think the motivators are, um, you know, celebrity and money. Uh, And so uh, there's always somebody who's uh, willing to, willing or anxious to capitalize on people's, uh, natural fear of unusual things uh, and capitalize it in a fashion that either gives them notoriety or more importantly, uh, gives them money. And if you look under the covers of the anti-vax movement and you uh, look at what's actually, what people are getting out of it, uh, for, the, for the most part, the people pushing this are profiting or gaining uh, notoriety uh, and some sort of uh, power out of that. And it takes different forms at different times. I mean, you know, in modern times, the, um, I associate 
the more modern anti-vax movement with a more liberal um, uh, crowd than anything else. People who regard themselves as, you know, highly educated and knowing better than the doctors and into, uh, you know, being natural and natural remedies and all that kind of stuff. You put all that stuff together and you say, I know better than the doctors and I don't want you to uh, shoot me up with this unnatural stuff. I'd rather just uh, get the disease. All right. Uh, but that's been now it's more recently been politicized into uh, issues of personal freedom. Okay. Where uh, you can't tell me what to do. And so that's has a more right leaning uh, uh, type flavor in the in the current atmosphere. But but, you know, you see people of all political stripes adopting an a, an anti-vax thing. And I think it's really, as I said, driven by nefarious motivations of the people who are who are driving them the, the movement because they want power and they want money. Mm. Yeah, I think that's so true. And so many different things in science. If you follow the money, you will find that um, usually across the board. So that makes a lot of sense. So it sounds like, you know, some of the skepticism is a little justified. And I'm, you know, again, if, if you'd have told me in March that we'd have vaccinations occurring, I would absolutely be skeptical. And I'd, I'd want to ask some questions as well. So I understand that. Um, a lot of people hear about this kind of new type of vaccination. And it it is kind of new. I mean, it's not actually new. But in order to tell that story, we kind of need to back up a little bit and talk about some of the other kinds of vaccines as they came along. We don't need to spend a ton of time on this, but the, the vaccine that you mentioned for smallpox, was that were, was that like a more refined form of what they were doing before? I believe it was the book Sapiens where he described like they would like wait until you got like a like a pus bubble or something and they cut it and try to give it to the kids and um, and try to get the amount right. Is that is that accurate at all? Uh, yeah, that is, uh, you've done your homework. Good for you. So, uh, smallpox was a real bummer and I urge, uh, listeners to just spend a moment to Google smallpox and look at the images. It was, uh, I, a disease that I think is probably more horrifying than anything that anybody, uh, on the planet now, uh, experiences. Uh, you usually caught it as a respiratory infection. It ultimately manifested as uh, painful blisters all over the body and had about a 30% mortality rate. Can you oh, imagine wow. what we're doing now with a 30% mortality wow, rate? That's crazy. And, and it was uh, endemic in all of the urban areas of the planet and epidemic uh, in the more rural areas. And yes, the early... So people, I think way before, you know, uh, centuries before germ theory and before they really knew anything about immunity or contagion, uh, had a, a rudimentary empirical uh, understanding that you could catch a disease from somebody else uh, and that with some diseases, once you got it, you never got it again. All right. Mm -hmm. And so it's a fairly logical step from there to say, okay, so if in some controlled fashion, we can artificially uh, induce this disease in somebody, we might be able to make it so that that's their only encounter and, and do it in a fashion where the chances that they're going to get killed are less. Mm, gotcha. So the ancient Chinese used to grind up 
uh, scabs from these uh, lesions that smallpox victims got and uh, blow it into their noses with a silver tube. Okay. <laughs> Uh, I don't think that was, that was called insufflation. That wasn't really all that successful. What was successful was, and this dates back mm, to at least the 17th century. I'm not, uh, or, or 18th century, 17th, 18th century was a practice where you would take material from a person who had active smallpox, pus from one of their lesions and scratch it into their arm and they would get a really nasty reaction but the mortality rate from that was only about one percent wow. rather than 30 percent so you were giving them a 30 30 fold better chance of surviving and that's really interesting because you're using the 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 real smallpox material and the only difference is that whereas ordinarily you acquire it as a respiratory infection. In this case, you're artificially inducing it through the skin. So I think what happens is that you are less likely to establish a body-wide, that is, systemic infection. And so that reduces the mortality. And there's evidence that um, the actual way in which it was applied, how deep the scratch was, influenced the outcome. There were some people who were better variolators than others. So yes, that as a basic concept with the natural material existed before Jenner. I mean, that doesn't sound very pleasant at all, but it's actually pretty brilliant <laughs> when you think about it all the way uh, back yeah. then. That's pretty smart. Uh, yeah, yeah. Wow, interesting. So yeah. how did vaccines evolve over time? First of all, Jenner's experiment was to recognize that milkmaids had a much lower incidence of smallpox than the rest of the population. And he was a doctor, and so he was a variolator. He did this variolation practice that I just described. And he also knew that milkmaids were susceptible to a disease called cowpox, where they got much more isolated, just skin lesions, one or two, uh, in a disease that they picked up from milking the cows. The cows had this same disease. And so he reasoned that maybe they were getting immunity to smallpox because of the cowpox. So he did the experiment. He took uh, material from uh, the hand of a milkmaid who had cowpox and scratched it using the variolation techniques into the arm of a nine-year-old boy uh, who had never seen either cowpox or smallpox. And then like six, and the kid just got, you know, uh, a limited lesion on his arm uh, that healed over. And then because you could do variolation, using variolation six weeks later, he challenged him with smallpox. Okay. Wow. Think of it. You couldn't wow. do that today. No. So he just scratched, he scratched smallpox into the kid's arm and the kid didn't get the typical variolation reaction. Wow. Uh, and so that caught on. So importantly, what that is, is an active virus. Okay. That's closely enough related to smallpox so that you get, an immunity reaction, but distantly enough related so that you don't get a serious disease. Mm. And as I think about it, that may be the only vaccine of exactly that kind that I can think of. Now, I'm not um, omniscient in this regard, so that may turn out to be wrong. But it's the, the, the in that case, you're talking about an active, I 
I'm trying to avoid using the word live mm. because we have debates about whether or not viruses yeah, are living. Yeah. You're using an active virus to immunize against uh, something. Mm. Now, from there, I would say up until what were this more the last five years, and in particular the last year, there were basically three different types of vaccines. One is an active vaccine in a way similar to Jenner's smallpox vaccine, but different, similar from the point of view that you would infect somebody with um, a, an active virus that did not cause disease to induce immunity to the disease-causing virus. But in most cases, the way that's done is to take the disease-causing virus and do what they call attenuate it, which means uh, change it in some fashion so that although it still replicates and can still infect you, it doesn't cause disease. And typically, the way that has been done historically is to take the normal virus and passage it, uh, that is, grow it repeatedly in a laboratory under abnormal conditions. Actually, well, the first was uh, Pasteur and the rabies vaccine. He passaged it in rabbits, mm. and that made it so that it was no longer as virulent in humans. Okay, with many vaccines subsequently, it was a matter of passaging it in uh, cell culture uh, or in uh, chicken eggs in a laboratory for like 500 times. And basically under those circumstances, the virus, it changes and it kind of forgets uh, how to evade human immunity. Uh, and it kind of forgets uh, maybe some of the subtleties of how to deal with a human because after all, you're uh, uh, helping it from cell culture to cell culture or egg to egg. And it doesn't have to deal with the immune system. It doesn't have to deal with uh, surviving in the environment. It doesn't have to deal with getting in through the respiratory route. And so it kind of uh, over time loses the ability to do a lot of that stuff, but can still replicate. So now you stick it into uh, a human uh, and it replicates some and uh, your immune system sees this, thinks it's infected, amounts an immune response, gets rid of it, uh, but the virus doesn't cause any disease. But the immunity protects you against the virulent virus. Mm, interesting. So another way to do this uh, is to take the active, what we call wild type, the virulent form of the virus, and grow up large quantities of that and then chemically inactivate it. Uh, typically, one of the chemicals used to inactivate viruses historically has been, for example, formaldehyde, which I think people, you know, that probably rings some bells with people as a, a chemical that's used to, you know, preserve specimens, that kind of stuff. It does that because it uh, cross-links, hooks together all of the components of the virus so that they can't get loose and do what they're supposed to do. It sort of freezes it and sort of gums up the works, but you still have the structure mm. of the virus that looks like the virus. So if you now inject that into people, it's been inactivated, so it can't replicate, but your immune system sees it and, oh, this looks like a virus particle, a foreign object. Uh, and so it mounts an immune response to that 
and uh, that gives you memory of that encounter that gives you immunity to subsequent infections. Mm, interesting. Most of the vaccines historically were one of those two. There's another type, which is just taking one of the proteins from a pathogen, a bacteria or a virus, um, that is an important part of the immunity and somehow purifying that and injecting that into people so they mount an immune response to that component of the virus and that immunity will give them immunity to the real infection. Gotcha. The kinds of immunity that are induced in all those three different cases because they're different mechanisms are a little different, but all of them have been effective over time. Hmm, interesting. So so let's let's talk about mRNA vaccines. So this is kind of the new kid on the block. It's not necessarily like a new technology They've been kind of working on this in the background for a while now, but I, I think these are so cool. Can you describe a little bit what an mRNA vaccine does? So I will try and do this without getting heavy duty into all of the molecular and cell biology behind this. But uh, if it's not clear enough without that, perhaps you can direct me and we can dig a little deeper. This is, I mean, this is why we invited you on the show. This is your wheelhouse. You are so good at distilling down really complicated information so that we can understand it. So it would be great. So the whole point here, I think everybody in their mind, everybody probably has in their minds now a picture of what the SARS coronavirus looks like. Okay. And you can picture a sphere with spikes sticking out of it. Um, what it really, what that, what, a vi what that virus is, and it's similar to many viruses, the sphere is actually made of uh, lipid. Lipid is a kind of a greasy substance that can form into a very thin sheet and helps, wall, helps compartmentalize uh, one watery compartment from another. Okay, so it's a ball of grease, all right, with a watery inside and uh, swimming around in a watery environment. And, okay? fat, and fat can't swim, so so that that's what creates that boundary, right? Hydro right. hydrophilic, hydrophobic. hydrophilic, does, uh, hydrophobic. Yes, yep, yep, yep. doesn't like okay. water. Gotcha. On the inside of the virus is uh, an RNA molecule, which is genetic material that encodes, literally encodes all the machinery to make the virus happen. The spikes are protein, okay? Uh, protein is a, a complex, proteins are the biomolecule that does all the work in cells. They're big, complex molecules that provide structure, do chemical reactions, do all sorts of interactions and stuff. And in terms of the virus, what that protein does is it uh, causes the virus to attach to a protein that's on the surface of a cell. And by the way, a cell is similar to the virus surrounded by a lipid membrane, this same core sort of boundary, right. and has protein sticking out of it. And so the virus spike protein attaches to a specific protein on the surface of the cell, and that causes the uh, membrane of the virus to fuse with the membrane of the cell and dump the RNA into the cell. Okay. The RNA, um, I am getting into the molecular biology. I can't help myself. No, this is good. This is great. The RNA 
encodes information for all of the proteins that the virus needs to do to re reproduce itself. And that reprodu reproduction means making more copies of the RNA and making more copies of the particle with a bunch more copies of the spike protein on it. Okay. The virus has about uh, has information to encode about 30 different proteins, one of which is the spike. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, the idea is to trick your immune system into thinking that you've been infected. And we've talked about a couple of different ways to do that. Uh, in the case of SARS-CoV-2, the thing to do is to somehow uh, introduce your immune system to this spike protein. Because we know that when you mount an immune response, actually, when you mount an immune response to uh, the SARS-CoV-2 infection, uh, you make antibodies and what we call killer and helper T cells to a bunch of different of the virus proteins. But one of the most important uh, components that you mount immunity to is the spike protein. And you make antibodies to all sorts of, you know, not just one antibody. Antibodies are proteins as well that are made by your cell, that by your cells that can react very specifically uh, to different parts of proteins that they don't recognize as self. Okay. So when you uh, are exposed to this, the virus, it makes, it may make several different there are antibodies with several different specificities that react with different parts of the spike protein. And they attach very uh, tightly to the spike protein so it can't do its job. It can't interact with the protein on the surface of the cell. And that's what we call neutralizing the virus. It can't do its infection. Other things happen as well because a virus particle coated with antibodies gets eaten by uh, cells in your body that are that whose job it is to eat antibody coated things and get rid of them for good. Okay. So although in a normal immune response to the virus, you may make antibodies and other kinds of immune cells that react to all sorts of different things that the virus does. All you really need, it turns out is antibody to the spike protein. And that's sufficient to stop the infection. Hmm. So what the vaccine does is it, encapsulates a messenger RNA molecule that you could think of as just one out of the 30 genes of the virus in a lipid nanoparticle. So to some extent, that's this uh, kind of the same kind of package that the virus comes with anyway, although it's not studded with a spike protein. It's just the RNA in the lipid nanoparticle that's delivered to, uh, delivered to cells in your body. And since that RNA encodes the spike protein, what happens is that the cells that take it up make spike protein. And your body then sees the spike protein, mounts an immune response to it, and that gives you immunity to uh, an infection down the road. And one of the interesting things to me is that, uh, so I, this is not necessarily all that different than uh, in, in principle to other vaccines, because if you make, there are, and there have been developed inactivated 
uh, SARS-CoV-2 vaccines where they grew up virus, inactivated it, and they're testing that on people. In that case, the immune response is to the spike protein, mostly. Uh, maybe to other components of the virus as well, but the active immune response is going to be to the spike protein. Uh, uh, people are not, I haven't seen any attenuated SARS-CoV-2 yet, but I would imagine they're in, uh, uh, in development. Probably a major component of the immune response to that is going to be spike protein as well. But this is a really efficient way to get spike protein made in your body Oh, there are other, I'm sorry, I'm interrupting myself. There's other vaccines as well that are just a spike protein made in a test tube and injected. But it turns out that with these messenger RNA vaccines, you get a really good immune response if the protein is made fresh in your body. And the way to do that is to somehow get the RNA into the appropriate cells. And the way to do that is to package them in this lipid nanoparticle and, uh, and deliver it. Wow. That's brilliant. <laughs> That's brilliant. How long has this idea been around? I don't know exactly, but it's not like somebody just thought it up when this came along. Uh, there have been, uh, so there are two uh, major informational molecules in cells. Uh, there's DNA and there's RNA everybody's heard of DNA at this point. Um, DNA is where you, uh, there's a, 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 has a permanent record of the code for any given organism. Um, but you don't need all of the information for all of the proteins that you need all the time. You only need some proteins sometime. So RNA, specifically appropriately named messenger RNA, okay, carries uh, some of the DNA code or uh, DNA code for whatever genes you need under whatever circumstances in time or during development to make proteins uh, for that. The idea of using DNA as a vaccine has been around, oh, got it, at least 30 years, hmm. maybe even more. Wow. Uh, and there have been a lot of different DNA vaccines that have been tried. Now, in order to get them to work, you'd have to inject the DNA vaccine. That has to be actually expressed as messenger RNA. The messenger RNA expresses protein. Um, I'm not an expert on this, but those vaccines historically have not worked as well as the messenger RNA. Maybe for some reason because of the extra steps involved. I don't know. I would guess, and I'm just guessing here, that the concept of using messenger RNA as a vaccine has been around for at least 10 years, but I don't know for sure. Mm -hmm. uh, but we're poised. I think it was uh, really very much re ready to go. The Moderna company um, that has made one of these two vaccines, their major business has been messenger RNA vaccines, I believe, uh, from the get-go. Uh, and at the time that SARS-CoV-2 hit, they had several uh, messenger RNA vaccines for several other diseases already in clinical trials. Mm. So they had done a tremendous amount of research and development to get these things into uh, clinical trials. So they were perfectly poised to uh, develop an RNA vaccine uh, for SARS-CoV-2 when the pandemic hit. And it's it's 
the, the one of the beautiful things about this is that all you need is the genomic sequence of the virus and some knowledge of what the appropriate protein is uh, to be expressed to get an immune response. And you're, you know, weeks That's so crazy. Uh, or less wow. away from a vaccine. It's, it's incredible. That's so crazy. Yeah, if I remember right, Moderna was like a small family company, like outside of Boston or something, if I recall. But there was, I'm assuming, not the money nor the urgency to really push this technology forward as quickly as we have until we had, you know, global pandemic out of control, correct? There are uh, quite a few. Uh, yeah, well, certainly the the pandemic stimulated a, a, a critical urgency. Uh, but uh, Moderna... I'm going to look them up right now so I don't uh, mess this up. Cambridge, Massachusetts. Okay. Pipeline. So they have in human clinical trials, I'm looking at their website now, they have vaccines for influenza, para-influenza, it's another respiratory illness, Zika, cytomegalovirus, uh, and respiratory syncytial virus. Mm. So, you know, some of these are, well, all of them are obviously clinically uh, relevant uh, diseases. Uh, I, the one that interests me more as much as anything else is respiratory syncytial virus, because that's uh, been uh, a really nasty pathogen of kids for a long time that has, has been very difficult to uh, make a vaccine to, and there have been vaccines made that uh, had some had some problems. So that's been that's been a difficult history, and I'm I'm wondering if this isn't going to crack that one. Mm. We'll see. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like it has potential to. That's pretty cool. So this is a gross oversimplification. I hesitate to even do this, but we 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 don't even. We, we take the code of the virus, we decipher which part is the spike, then we package up this message, a temporary message, mRNA, send it into the body, into the cells, tell the cells like, hey, start making spikes, just do this for now. Um, so your body does and it mounts the immune response to the spikes so that when it sees it next time, it's like, oh yeah, we remember these guys, these guys suck, let's get these out of here. And that's how that kind of works, is that... Uh, 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 that's actually quite a nice summary. Uh, Great job. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it's very gross simplification, but, um, well, and as a matter of fact, I would encourage people, uh, you know, that I don't have, I don't have these at my fingertips, but there are, uh, numerous, uh, uh, sites around. I mean, if you just Google messenger RNA vaccine, uh, you can get all sorts of, sites that will describe this. As a matter of fact, the Moderna site itself has a few, I'm looking at them now, has a, an animation uh, and a couple of different uh, resources that show how messenger RNA works and how a messenger RNA vaccine works. That so you can get healthy. it in a sort of a cartoon fashion so that uh, your description is very good. But for people who want to dig a little deeper or who are visually oriented, I would recommend they do that. Awesome. Yeah, we will definitely link to that. That sounds very helpful. Um, now you guys, you guys were talking in one of your last episodes. In fact, I think it was your last episode on TWIV about the six week turnaround time and how, you know, we're kind of getting a little concerned that there's different variants of the disease kind of popping up. But if we can respond within weeks to maybe different types of codes, and that's 
that's fast. Like that's pretty cool. We can kind of dance around whatever whatever the virus does. Correct. Uh, yeah, and in fact, uh, the most recent episode that dropped on Sunday uh, was to me uh, fascinating. Yes, uh, there have been variants that have shown up recently. Uh, they, um, some of those are suspected to spread faster. Uh, however, and that's a problem uh, because it means that we have to be more vigilant. However, with the variants that have shown up so far, none have been implicated as evading immunity. Okay. So matter of fact, there was a, a paper that came up, came across my inbox just today with some direct experiments showing that people that are immune to, uh, you know, one of the standard circulating variants of SARS-CoV-2 also have immunity to one of the new variants. I can't be specific on that, but gotcha. there's no indication that any of these new variants are evading immunity or that they are more pathogenic. Gotcha. Good for now. At the Let's same keep, time, keep our eyes on. Good for now. Yeah. At the same time, uh, we did a paper that uh, we discussed a paper on TWIV looking at one of the common cold coronaviruses that showed that at least with that existing human coronavirus that just causes apparently mild disease and has been it was discovered in 1985, that in the period of time between 1985 and currently that thing has undergone what we call antigenic drift, uh, which means that uh, if you were immune to a strain that was around in 1985, you may not be as immune or immune at all to a strain circulating in uh, uh, 2020. That is, the virus evolves sufficiently so that past immunity doesn't necessarily protect you against uh, the newest version of the virus. Now, there's all sorts of caveats to this. Uh, there may be, uh, over that period of time, there may be slow enough evolution and enough reinfection so that you maintain immunity to the whole spectrum of viruses. And there's some evidence in the paper that that could happen. Uh, but the turnaround for this seems to be on the order of, say, seven years or even longer. And as you just pointed out, uh, if today we decided that we needed a uh, vaccine for a new variant, uh, my guess is that you could have the uh, basic vaccine itself within a week. So all right. That not, not produced in mass quantity. The limiting factor would be the mass production of this production. thing. Uh, but, uh, you know, turnaround times of what they're saying, six weeks or so, um, is, is not, is not crazy. So wow. it's, that's the other magic of this thing. If you imagine trying to create a new inactivated virus or a new attenuated virus, um, uh, or even a new, uh, protein where you've got to engineer up the protein and et cetera, those may have a very much longer turnaround. This is really quick. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. And I think you guys were discussing also like immunity is not necessarily like binary. It's not like on or off. It's, it wanes Correct. over time and, you know, maybe, maybe after five years, it's 50%, maybe it's 70%, maybe it's different for different people. We, we don't know, but right. it, it looks good over time. Correct. Yep. 
Okay, awesome. So we have the we have the vaccine and we want to start testing it. So there's a difference in um, studies, qualities of studies, kind of a big deal. So there's something like a, a, a population study called epidemiology, where we look at a big group of people. We see trends. Um, you know, this group looks like it's doing this. They also do this. So that might be a correlation or an association, but that doesn't mean there's a causation to prove causation. You need to do what is called a randomized control trial, where basically you take Correct. two groups of people you control for every single variable that you possibly can, save one, watch them for X amount of time, and then you can prove causation that way. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay. So on these RCTs to push for the vaccine, there's also different phases, and these phases move pretty quick. Can you can you mention like what, what the phases are all about? Yep. So there's uh, – there's, uh, when you start talking about phases – uh, you're talking about trials in humans. You can also talk globally about a preclinical phase if you want, because there's all sorts of testing that goes on uh, in cell culture and in laboratory animals and stuff to test the principle. Yeah, uh, but as we often say on TWIV, mice lie and monkeys exaggerate. <laughs> so you can't necessarily trust the results you get out of animal experiments. But they're an important uh, precursor because quite often if it's not going to work at all or if it's going to cause some sort of uh, problem, it'll show up in an animal model. So you don't go to humans until you've figured all that out. That's the preclinical studies or a preclinical phase. Uh, the clinical phases generally are phase one, phase two, and phase three. Uh, phase one and phase, phase one, uh, and they are, uh, increasingly larger trials. That is increasingly more people involved. Okay. Phase one typically is a very small fundamental safety trial. Okay. And it's, uh, usually, you know, maybe as few as a dozen or a couple of dozen people, probably not more than uh, 25 or 50. Uh, I think probably usually less than that. And that is simply that you administer whatever it is you're trying to test. And this goes for drugs and vaccines and lots of other things. You administer whatever it is under the conditions that you think you want to use it. Uh, and you ask whether it causes any harm. Yeah. If um, half of the people and, drop dead, you have a problem. That's right. And so that's the major goal of a trial like that. Now, usually those trials will have secondary goals. They may try a couple of different doses. They may actually look to see if you make antibody in the case of a vaccine trial, but that's not the primary outcome. But they may structure the trial with enough different variables so that that can inform the phase two trial. Phase two trial, um, in the case of a vaccine, typically is to look uh, closer or in a larger population for safety, uh, but also to get some measure of effectiveness. Uh, and in the case of these uh, vaccines, and I think typically in the case of vaccines, I'm not a clinical trials guy, but so uh, I, I'm mostly correct here, I think. I know I'm correct in the case of uh, these vaccines. Uh, the measure that they look for is 
the the immune response. That is, do you make antibody? Uh, and as I said, there are, uh, antibody is not the only thing that you do to make an immune response. You make special uh, immune cells that also help fight off the infection. They're typically called T, T cells. So do you make antibody? Do you make uh, T cells that are specific uh, for this virus? And if so, uh, at what levels? And typically in a phase two trial, you may try a couple of different doses. You may do a, a, a compare one dose and two dose, measure how much antibody, measure how many T cells, and also keep track of the safety. Okay. So those trials are on the order of hundreds of people, maybe 100, maybe 500 ish. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that gives you an enhanced picture of the safety. It tells you whether or not you're getting an immune response, but it doesn't tell you whether or not that immune response is going to protect you against getting the disease. Right. What you really want to know uh, is because uh, we don't necessarily know enough in detail about immunity to go in and measure all these different things and know that that's going to protect you against disease. All right. Yeah. The only way you can be sure of that is to administer the vaccine and ask, are people really protected against disease? And in order to do that, you need a huge trial. Yep. And here in the cases of uh, the mRNA vaccines, we're talking between 20 and 50,000 people. Uh, the average trials are about, about 30,000 individuals. One of the reasons you need so many is that not everybody's going to get sick. Right. All right. You have to... Uh, give half of those people uh, the vaccine and half of them a placebo. And then you send them out into the world and ask what happens. And uh, at basically the way they do this is that when uh, on the order of 150 to 200 people uh, show up with disease that these are blind. So you don't, the people watching this uh, don't know who got the placebo and who didn't. Okay. It's all coded. All right. But when on the order of 200 people uh, show up with disease, because you monitor the people in the trial uh, regularly at that point, some subset of investigators can break the code on those individuals and say, which of those got the vaccine and which of them got the placebo. And if what you find is that uh, the vast majority of people who got sick got the placebo and very few of the very few or no, none of the people who got sick got the vaccine, you can do a bunch of statistical analysis and say, aha, the vaccine is effective in preventing disease. Mm. And you can put a number on that. So just, just roughly, if you had 100 people that got sick and 90 of them were in the placebo group and 10 of them were in the vaccine group, I'm sorry, yes, that way, uh, you can say that the vaccine was 90% effective. Yep. Awesome. Okay. 
So, so this is why if we did this trail trial, excuse me, in New Zealand right now, we would be waiting a very long time to see the results because they took care exactly. of everything from the beginning. So exactly. ironically, Good point. <laughs> ironically, us doing such a terrible job controlling everything made the trial go really fast. <laughs> it is a tragic irony. It that is, is absolutely irony. correct. So phase one, let's give this to a few people and make sure that it's not causing any harm. Phase two, Correct. let's ramp those numbers up. Let's still make sure it's not causing any harm, but let's let's see if this thing works. Phase three, let's find a really big group. Let's get old people and young people and all kinds of locations and all kinds of, um, I, I mean, you'd want the most diverse crowd possible so you can start to pick out those patterns. Then once you hit a certain threshold, unblind everything, make some conclusions, and then you're good to go. That's correct. And keep watching and the, it. And the, and the important distinction between phase two and phase three is that phase two, you're not asking whether or not people get disease. You can score that if you want, but it's really too few people to get good numbers on it. Mm. Um, uh, phase two, you're just looking at what happens in a person's body. Do they make antibodies? Do they do something that looks like you're getting an immune response? But that doesn't tell you whether that immune response is going to be effective. Right. You need the phase three trial to actually look at disease. Mm -hmm. You can collect all the other data as well, because what you'd like to get out the other end, among other things, is what we call correlates of protection. That is, uh, we can say on the one hand, whether or not you get disease, and on the other hand, what your immune response looks like. And we can say, oh, if you get this kind of an immune response, that's going to make you immune to the disease. So we can correlate the immune response to whether or not you get disease. That's what we mean by correlates of protection. And that's a really mm, challenging uh, uh, information to get. Mm, gotcha. Um, I believe it was Brianne answered this one on your show, and I thought it was brilliant the way she she kind of explained things. Maybe you can help us understand why is a booster shot needed and when is the most ideal time to get it? Okay. This is, uh, in particular with what's going on now, this is a really interesting question. Um, ah, immunity is just so fascinating. It's so interesting. It's amazing. It's so interesting. The science behind it is oh. interesting, but you're right. Like It's not only... It's not only what the science says, but what do we do with it? And you're right. Look, with what's going on, there's so many different directions we could take this. So um, the immune response we're talking about with antibodies and T cells and stuff is what's called the adaptive immune response. Very good word. Uh, because what it means is that uh, your body gets a whiff of this foreign object and recognizes it, but uh, not necessarily very specifically. Basically, you're born with a library of immune cells that can, it's incredible, recognize almost any foreign object, okay? But not necessarily with tremendous specificity. But then once that recognition takes place, those cells are trafficked, or uh, actually this all happens in lymph nodes. In the lymph nodes where that recognition takes place, uh, those cells uh, go to school, all right? And they actually, the genes that encode the reactive molecules actually mutate uh, and are selected 
to mature into uh, uh, antibodies and other recognition molecules that are very, very finely tuned to whatever the foreign object is, okay? So this is the process of adaptation. And that's why, that's part of the reason that an adaptive immune response takes at least a week and on the order of two weeks because your cells are going to school in your lymph nodes, mm. okay? Now, as that's going on, one of the things that happens is that a subset of those cells become memory cells uh, and they then are stored elsewhere. Memory B cells that make antibody are stored in your bone marrow, okay? And they aren't responsible necessarily for making a lot of uh, antibody over a period of time. They're responsible for remembering all that schooling so, so, if- that, when you, so that when you encounter the same thing again, you, you don't have a weak response. You have a strong response. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's immediately has been educated. They say, ah, I've seen this before and I know exactly what to do with it. Okay. It takes a little, it takes a couple of weeks to establish that memory and for the primary response to kind of level off and, and sort of ramp down. And you want all that primary stuff to be over with. Before you then, okay, so then what happens is that every time that you are exposed to either the vaccine or the pathogen, um, the cells go to school again, okay? It wakes up the memory cells, and they go back to school, and they make even a better response, and it's better in many ways. It's faster. It has a higher affinity. Um, uh and uh, a longer, uh, a better memory. So the initial response is good. Every time you expose somebody to the pathogen or to the immunogen or to the vaccine, the, that whole response goes back to school and gets better. So you want to wait for a period of time until the primary response is over. Wait until they're out of school for that one. Okay, and that's a period of at least two weeks. And I think that's where these I think I'm making this up, but it's I, th- I think that that's where the uh, interval for the booster comes from Moderna and Pfizer. One is three weeks. One is four weeks. Okay, they want to wait until they're sure based on everything they know about immunology, that you're done with the primary response and that when you do the boost, what you're doing is boosting the, the memory, mm. okay? Uh, and getting uh, the appropriate sort of booster effect. And they want to do this uh, as, as quickly, they want to get people's immunity as robust as they can, as soon as they can. So if you can do it in three or four weeks, you don't want to wait longer than that. Right. That doesn't mean you couldn't wait longer than that. I don't know what the outside window to this is, and I'm not sure that anybody knows. I do know that when I got, now it's a different type of vaccine, but when I got my shingles vaccine, the first, uh, the boost was prescribed for between two and six months. Mm. After the first, gotcha. I know that when you get your measles immunization, the second immune, the the booster for that, and I'm not sure that this functions as 
I'm not sure that this is as much a booster as it is a mop up to make sure that everybody actually got vaccinated at least once, but that doesn't happen until uh, on the order of two years or even four years after the original vaccination. Mm. And some, some immunizations don't necessarily require a boost. And that actually has been a point of contention with this because you've seen in the press, they've said, oh, uh, people are 90% uh, protected after the first immunization. So we can go ahead and give out the first, uh, immunization to everybody. And, you know, we don't have to worry about a boost. Maybe we'll do it later. Right. Okay. But the data for that number, uh, it's, we're talking about many fewer cases. I don't think it's statistically as robust. And also, if you look at the immune response in terms of antibody and T cells, it's clear that in all these vaccines, the boost is doing something. Mm. Okay. Uh, they, in, in all of the ones that we've looked at from now we can use the words from phase two trials where they looked at antibody and they published all these data. There is an increased level of antibody uh, when you get the boost. Mm. And I believe the T cell response is also, boosted as well. So the boost is doing something. Now it could be because we don't know what the correlates of protection are exclusively. It could be that that first immunization is actually enough to give you 90% uh, protection because it could be you don't need that extra antibody mm. to give you or T cells or whatever to give you uh, 100% immunity. But there's no question in my mind, at least, that the boost does something. And there's certainly no downside. Hmm. Okay. Interesting. Uh, okay, totally shooting from the hip on this one. Let, let, let's make this an analogy and tell me if I'm okay on this one. I just thought this up, so <laughs> bear with me. Crime's committed, and you don't know who did it, so let's send out 50 cops to go find whoever committed this crime. Found the guy, took a lot of work, but you don't necessarily want 50 cops running around all the time to find one dude. So why don't we go back to the station, let's print out a bunch of posters, and let's distribute them all over the place so that if that if the crime is committed again, there's at least posters. And now we can send out maybe like four cops and you know more people recognize the criminal, so it's a little bit easier to find the second time. But when you do it the second time... It's, it's still the guy committing the crime. So now let's let's make a lot more posters and stick them all over the place. And then maybe the crime won't ever get committed again. Is that fair? I'm okay with that. I'm going to have to think <laughs> about that a little bit. But that's a that's an interesting analogy. I'm going to have to process that a, a little bit. It's a stretch. Okay. <laughs> uh, super interesting. So they were they were hoping that these vaccines would be you know at least fifty percent effective. They came back more than ninety percent effective, which is great news. One thing that a lot of people ask is. Do the va do the vaccines prevent you from spreading the disease, or do they just make you not get sick? Don't know yet. And that's okay. an important one. And that's a really important question. Um, and I, that that remains to be seen. I can tell you, I can speculate. I will speculate. Uh, certainly they protect you against disease. We know that this virus can cause asymptomatic infections. If If the immunity actually prevented you entirely from getting infected, that is, the virus got into your body and your immunity is so strong that it can never establish an infection. It wipes it out before you ever make any new virus. 
Okay. That's what we call sterilizing immunity. And not all vaccines do that. Mm. Uh, many of the vaccines out there uh, prevent disease without necessarily completely preventing infection. All right. So it is, uh, and we know that SARS-CoV-2 can cause asymptomatic infections. I don't know how relevant that is, but we know it can happen. So uh, it's perfectly within the realm of possibility that even though these vaccines prevent disease, that you could still get infected and make a, uh, some amount of virus and maybe even, if you do that, shed it to other people, mm. okay? Now, my guess is that if that happens, that it'll happen at a lower level. My guess is that even if it's not sterilizing immunity, that the vaccines will, and I'm totally guessing here, but my guess is that if even if there's not sterilizing immunity, the vaccines will reduce virus replication uh, to the point where it'll reduce spread through the population mm. significantly. That makes the okay. most sense to me. Yeah. Mm. Uh, but importantly, that means that until everybody's vaccinated, I feel, and I believe people should feel, uh, that they have a social obligation to not potentially spread virus to other individuals. So that means that many of the practices that we are already undertaking, that is masking and social distancing, will have to be continued until we're confident that a sufficient number of people are immune so that we can be confident that there's very little virus around to spread. Mm. Otherwise, if we're all running around still cooking up virus, uh, then some poor bloke uh, who's not immune is going to get infected by one of us unknowingly and die. We don't want that to happen. Sure. Yeah, that's a really good point. And that was a great, seg great segue to my next question, um, which is a listener question. Somebody asked this today. There were two parts. One person asked, what, what is the percentage you think we need to get to to get to herd immunity? And the other question is, we pretty much answered it. What's, what happens if people refuse it? I mean, at, at a certain point, you know, we have to go out and mingle again. But if, you know, if we're not even close to that percentage, like, how do we... <laughs> I, again, you kind of already answered it, but it's, it's just kind of interesting to think about. Like, we could still overwhelm the hospitals for some time to come, correct? Uh, oh, yeah. So, um, <clears throat> the fraction of the population that needs to be immune in order to affect uh, herd immunity depends on how infectious a virus is. And it differs for... <laughs> different viruses. And infectiousness can be measured by, on average, how many other people does an infected person infect? Okay? The R-naught. Uh, the R-naught, correct. So in measles, I, I'm no good at hanging on to these numbers, but in measles, that's something like 11. Measles is one of the most infectious viruses around. Wow. That's just huge. And in measles, you need something in excess of 90% of the population immune maybe even as much as 95, to get really solid herd immunity. Mm. Um, the R value, R naught for uh, SARS-CoV-2 is thought to be around 2.5, I believe. 
And uh, my understanding is that what they're anticipating is that you're going to need on the order of at least 70% of the population immune. Now, uh, I, I, I want to qualify this. I'm doing this off the top of my head, and I'm not an epidemiologist. So uh, if, uh, you know, you find reliable numbers elsewhere from the CDC or something, um, go with that. But that's my understanding. 70-ish. Uh, you'd obviously like more than that if you can. But that, you know, you still have 30% of the population that are uh, susceptible, okay? So uh, even if there's not as much transmission in the population, those people are naive. If they encounter virus, they're going to get sick. The probability is decreased because there's not as much virus circulating, but it's not gone. So they're still at risk. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's really well explained. Oh, man, this has been awesome. Awesome conversation. Now to the rapid fire questions. We've talked about the science behind it. Now I'm going to ask you personally, would you get the vaccine, an mRNA vaccine? Could be either one, Pfizer or Moderna, if I gave it to you today. Uh, I can't wait. Yes, I would. I would take it. I don't know if I'd let you do it. Okay. <laughs> but uh, I'd let, I'd let uh, uh, a nurse under your supervision do it. That's probably wise. <laughs> That's probably wise. <laughs> but, uh, but absolutely, I can't wait. So you would I get would it. No has absolutely no hesitation whatsoever. As a matter of fact, I would not only be enthusiastic uh, because of what it would do for me, but I just think the technology is so cool that uh, for me as a virologist, it's like driving a Lamborghini. <laughs> That's so cool. That's a great analogy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you got to live through something that you studied your entire life and it's terrible and unfortunate, but also so fascinating for you being in the field. Um, and there's like, there's like, uh, as, as far as I can tell, no downside. I was going to ask that. So are they putting, you know, 5g networks or computer chips in these vaccines from what we can tell? Nope. <laughs> okay, they're, good. they're as, they're as safe as can be. There has been, I think the uh, the, and you probably heard this on Daniel Griffin's latest, uh, I think the adverse effect, there's always some level of adverse effects in any of these, but you know, usually they're minor, man. I remember taking some sort of a vaccine that I had as a kid to travel. I think it may have been my first tetanus, uh, immunization. I'm not sure that left my arm so sore. I couldn't raise it. Wow. For a couple of days. Yeah, it tetanus was, it shots was hurt. Yeah. They do hurt. <laughs> that's uh, serious stuff, but that's, a, you know, it's better than, it's a hell of a lot better than tetanus. At any rate, the adverse effects seem to be generally really mild and really rare. It seems like there is some incidence of, well, I, I almost hate to word, use the word because it scares people, anaphylaxis, sort of a hyperimmune uh, an immediate hyper immune sensitivity response to the vaccine in about one in a hundred thousand people. Mm. Okay. But in no cases, uh, does that cause any permanent harm? And mostly it can be dealt with the recommendation, according to Daniel is that, uh, uh, uh offices that are going to do vaccinations have a supply of 
Benadryl and epinephrine and appropriate expertise on hand so that on the in the unlikely event that they encounter something like this, uh, they can treat it on the spot. And usually it's it's just not a problem. Mm. So I just have no hesitation about this at all. Awesome. Yeah, I would get it today if I had the chance to. I saw some article online, some case study or something where it, the headline was like, doctor in New York gets has has horrible reaction to vaccination. And it, it seems like almost like an anti-vax, like, see, we told you so. And then you read into the article and it says something like he, they, they, you know, they had his EpiPen ready. He's had allergic reactions in the past. So he knew this could be possible and they watched him for a few hours and then he walked out of the hospital and he was just fine. <laughs> like, yeah. Uh, <laughs> when it, now, now we're into the realm of journalism. Yeah, okay. Exactly. And, uh, and it's, you know, there's a couple of levels to this. Uh, because I think there are a lot of science journalists that are actually quite responsible and write good science journalism. And there are those who are not and write alarmist stuff. But my understanding is that uh, to a very uh, significant degree, if not virtually always, uh, as a journalist, you submit your article. Somebody else writes the headline. Okay. <laughs> Some editor writes the headline. Uh, and I find that a lot of the irresponsibility is in the headlines. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, because they're they're designed to sell uh, sell the product, uh, and what sells better than anything else is fear. Yep. Okay. And so that's unfortunate. Yep. So you gotta you gotta uh, that, that's an important lesson, uh, Casey. Because when you see a scary headline like that, read the article. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. This has been so prevalent in the nutrition world for years and years and years. Some headline grabs the attention and this is now bad for you and an egg's going to kill you. And then you read about it and it's, oh, this was epidemiological. It was based on a food frequency questionnaire. It was given to 50 people for the course of like four weeks. And there was a super minor difference that has nothing to do with causing cause causation, it's correlation and they run with it. And so, yeah, it's, it's so valuable to have shows like TWIV and really good scientific information and teach people how to read articles, read the studies, see who paid for it. How big was the sample size? What were they looking for? What were they trying to show? Because so often those headlines don't, they don't even have anything to do with what the study was trying to show poorly. (laughs) It's terrible. One of the things that I've found more and more, uh, is that good science journalists provide links in their articles to the to their sources yep. and the sources of the primary information. And as a matter of fact, I would go so far as to say that I would be skeptical of uh, many articles that don't do that. Agree. Uh, uh, and and I think it's important when you have any questions at all to go ahead and chase down those links. Yeah, they may be complex literature and stuff, but the more you look into it, the, the you can get some idea of how reliable the information is and what it's based on. Yep. I agree. Rich, this has been an awesome conversation. I'm so happy that it's our second one. I'm going to leave you with one last question. How will your life change once you get the vaccine? Well, I will feel enormously relieved. So our situation as I don't know, I don't know. Uh, actually, this has been described on TWIV, but not to your to your listeners because uh, I wasn't in this situation uh, at the time I did my first interview. So the reason 
my wife and I live in Austin is because one of my three children lives in Austin and we moved after I retired to a house that's like a five minute walk from their house. And it's my daughter and her husband and two kids. My daughter uh, is a professor at Texas State University. Uh, my, uh, her husband is an elementary school principal. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, and the, his school is running at half capacity, half in, pay, in, in person, half online. Uh, and Texas State is running at a reduced capacity, but uh, there are people there. They follow all the appropriate rules. They've managed in their work environments to uh, manage the disease <clears throat> uh, reasonably well, but both they have both have to go to work. The kids are in online school. So what happens? Our house is the schoolhouse. So the kids come here. The risk is, the greatest risk is that the parents will bring disease home, bring virus home to the kids, and the kids will vector it to us. Yep. Okay. Now, that doesn't mean that they, you know, I mean, I don't mean to minimize the risk to them directly, either the kids or the adults, because they, you know, younger people do get uh, sick and very sick and die. Okay. But the probability, as you know, goes up as you get older. And my wife and I are both over 70. Okay. So the big risk as we assess it is that the parents will bring the disease home to the kids. The kids will vector it to us. Okay. But this is, we've done sort of our own personal benefit risk analysis. Uh, <clears throat> right now, uh, we don't visit each other's houses. The only thing that goes back and forth is the kids. And we do the best we can. When I'm vaccinated, I will just heave a huge sigh of relief. And uh, that will be uh, gone. Awesome. And I think we will probably then regather with our, uh, with our family in each other's houses. It's going to be a beautiful day. Uh, I will probably venture out to stores more. Okay. But I'll wear a mask. Uh, it, it's uh, that I will probably do some more interaction with the population right now. I'm mostly, mostly home, but I'll probably venture out in a, an appropriately socially distanced fashion, wearing a mask, doing all that stuff. But I'll, I won't, I'll probably, you know, let up a little bit still within the guidelines. Okay. But I'm, I'm sort of extra clamped down at this point uh, because we are so vulnerable. Yeah, that's a great answer. I was hoping that that would be your answer. Where can people go if they have more questions? Could be, you know, to you or to the, the, the TWIV website. Like, where would you like to send people if they if they want to learn more? I'm happy for you to give out my contact information. And uh, I'm happy to uh, correspond with people in whatever fashion uh, is suitable. Uh, I'm far from overwhelmed at this point. And so if, uh, if, if, if there came a time when I was overwhelmed, I would, you know, you know, back off, but I doubt if that would happen. I would certainly send people to TWIV. Okay. Um, you know, I think uh, as, as roundly bashed as they have been, the CDC is still a reliable site, uh, quite a reliable site. 
and so it can be a little um, trying to dig around in their stuff. Uh, but I recently uh, read the CDC stuff on the uh, variant that uh, showed up in the United Kingdom and is now pretty much global. Um, and it was outstanding. Awesome. It was really an excellent description. They're very good with the vaccine. Uh, they're very good with the disease. So I think the CDC is one of the best resources that you could that you could go to. And I, I think TWIV, CDC, me, um, those are good sites to start with. Awesome. I, I, I hesitate to go much beyond that because then you wind up with Google and then you're in a morass yep. of potentially uh, misinformation. Yep, I agree. Well, Rich Condit, thank you so much. We said in the introduction that you have been a beacon of light through this pandemic, and we certainly mean that. And we appreciate you and your time today. And thanks for coming back on to Boundless Body Radio. Well, I appreciate what you're doing. I appreciate the opportunity to be here. And you can call on me anytime. I will do whatever I can. Awesome. Thank you so very much. And this has been another sure episode of Boundless Body Radio.